So let's start the Dhamma talk with the Namotasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa So today is Vesak day and so it's going to be a Vesak talk. On the full moon day of May, and just as I was walking down here to the meditation hall, I saw the full moon up there in the sky, very clear and bright. So on this full moon day of May, Buddhists all around the world gather to commemorate the Buddha's birth, enlightenment and passing away. And in Burma, they include an other event that happened on this full moon day of May. On that very day, the hermit Sumedho got the prophecy from the previous Buddha, Dipankara, that he would become a Buddha in the future by the name of Gautama. And so then, on this very day, the Prince Siddhartha, the Buddha-to-be, was born. On this very day, the Bodhisattva became fully enlightened. And on this very day, the Buddha finally passed away, entering Parinibbana, as it is called. So among these events, three or four, the Buddha's enlightenment was the most important one. This awakening to things as they really are was truly a groundbreaking experience. And it had far-reaching and very profound effects not only for the Buddha's life himself but also for the lives of incountable uh, human beings and other beings. So with this groundbreaking experience an ordinary human being's quest for peace and happiness had culminated in the highest possible realization. And this highest realization not only uprooted the suffering and its causes for that present uh, life, but it also brought a complete end to the um, endless cycle of birth and death. The Buddha expressed this in this verse that we chanted this morning as part of the 
พุทธพิเศษค่ะมังกรากาธรรมโซตาพุทธเซต Through many a birth in samsara have I wandered in vain, seeking the builder of this house of life. Repeated birth is indeed suffering. O house builder, you are seen. You will not build this house again, for your rafters are broken and your rich ball shattered. My mind has reached the unconditioned nibbana, the end of craving. Has been attained. So now let's go back to the time when the Buddha to be was the hermit Sumedho, and this was at the time of Buddha Dipankara. At that time, the Buddha to be was a hermit called Sumedho, and he. Lived alone by himself in the forest, and he had mastered the jhanas, and with that uh, was endowed with supernormal powers, meaning that he could fly through the air, reading the minds of other people, uh, having the divine eye, seeing things that are far away, or seeing things. That are very small, and so one day, as he was traveling by flying through the air, he saw that many people were busy repairing uh, a road, and so curious what they were doing, he descended down on the ground and asked what they were doing, and so these people told him that. Buddha Dipankara, with a group of monks, would come along this path, and so they were repairing the road to fill up muddy holes, uh, make uneven patches, even, and so on. And so, when the hermit Sumedho heard that the Buddha was coming, uh, he was very delighted, and so he asked for one part of the road. To repair, to fix, and so they assigned him one part of the road, and so he was working, filling um, muddy holes with earth and stones. But then the Buddha Dipankara and the group of monks was coming, and the hermit Sumedho had not yet finished its his assigned uh, patch of the road. And so, to prevent that the Buddha Dipankara and the monks had to step into a very muddy uh, part, he lied on the ground and made a bridge uh, for the Buddha with his body. And so, as the Buddha was approaching, uh, Sumedho, looking at the Buddha, was struck with the Buddha's radiance. And graciousness, and so uh, the wish arose to also become a Buddha in the future. And as Buddha Dipankara was approaching, and right in front uh, of his head, knowing the thought of this uh, ascetic, and knowing 
that he had uh, all the necessary qualities, qualifications to become a Buddha in the future, he stopped and said that this ascetic would become a future Buddha by the name of Gautama. And so, with this prophecy from Buddha Dipankara, the hermit Sumedho became a bodhisattva. In the Buddhist tradition, a bodhisattva is one who undertakes the long course of spiritual development very consciously motivated by the aspiration to attain future Buddhahood. And so, inspired and sustained by great compassion for living beings who are stuck uh, in this life filled with suffering, so that a Bodhisattva fulfills over a long, long period of time, over many eons of time, so he fulfills all the necessary qualifications and requisites to become uh, a fully enlightened Buddha. Among these different qualifications or requisites are the paramis or the perfections. And among these perfections, like the first one is dana, practicing generosity. And so there are three levels to fulfill these perfections. The first level is in regards to material things. So for example, practicing generosity, so this would amount to give away material things. Then the second level uh, is in regard to parts of the body, to one's limbs. And so, for example, with the perfection of dana, generosity, this would mean to offer parts of one's body to others for their benefit. And on the third level, it's in regard to one's life. And with the uh, perfection of dana, generosity, so then this would amount to offer one's life for the sake of other beings. And so in order to become a Buddha, one has to fulfill these perfections on all the three levels. And when, after this long, long period of time, finally all the necessary qualifications and qualities have been uh, fulfilled, then the Bodhisattva uh, reaches Buddhahood, becomes fully enlightened, and with that he can establish the Dhamma in the world. So with his enlightenment, the Buddha discovers a path that has been walked by previous Buddhas. So it's discovering an ancient path. It's not something completely new that 
nobody else had never ever realized before. Previous Buddhas had realized it before and uh, taught it to uh, beings, but then it had become lost again. And so the Buddha's enlightenment is discovering an ancient path. It is said that in his life, before uh, he became enlightened, he lived in a Deva realm. And it said that every Buddha in his second but last life lives in the Tushita Deva realm. And from there he descended, uh, when he passed away from that existence in the Deva realm, he descended into the womb of Mahata Maya Devi, a queen of a small kingdom in northern India. And when the time was near to give birth to her child, she started to travel to the place of her parents because it was customary at that time that a woman would go to her parents' place to give birth to a child. And so, as she was traveling north towards present-day Nepal, before she reached her parents' home, uh, the labor started. And so, it was in this place called Lumbini that she gave birth to the Buddha. And this happened on the full moon day of May. And as she had given birth to her child there, then it was no longer necessary to travel to her parents' place. So after that, she returned back to the palace. It is said, when the Buddha-to-be was born, uh, right after his birth, he made seven steps and then declared I am the highest in the world. I am the best in the world. I am foremost in the world. This is my last birth. Now there is no renewed existence for me. So when Queen Mahamaya Devi had returned to the palace, her husband, King Suddhodana, he called eight astrologers to read this child's future. And seven of them said that this child uh, had very auspicious signs and that he either would become a universal monarch or a fully enlightened Buddha. Only one of these astrologers said that he would definitely become a Buddha. And so King Suddhodana of course he wanted his child to become his successor and so he tried everything to make life pleasant and agreeable for his son. So he provided him with every possible sense and pleasure with nice food, with um, nice entertainment and music and beautiful girls around in the palace. 
So he was very careful that the prince would not become dissatisfied with life. And he even built three palaces for the prince. Like there were three seasons. One palace for the hot season, one palace for the rainy season, the monsoon period, and one palace for the cool season. So the prince grew up very protected within the walls of the palace. But then at one stage he was curious to know how life was outside of the palace walls. And so he arranged this trip with his charioteer, Janna. We have all probably heard about uh, this trip outside of the palace where the Buddha encountered old age, sickness and death because his father, King Sudadana, uh, was very careful not to have any disturbing or distressing sights in the palace and so as much as he could he removed old people or sick people or dead people uh, from the palace. And so when the prince saw a very old person a sick person and a dead person, he, his heart, his mind was greatly shaken. And when Janna, his charioteer, told him that actually he too, the prince, was also subject to aging, sickness and death, the prince was even more shaken. And as they continued on this trip, then they came across the sight of a monk whose uh, demeanor was very peaceful and serene. And as a result of these four encounters, the prince decided to leave the life in the palace and find a way to become completely free from all sufferings inherent in human existence. And so then, after having left the palace and become an ascetic, a renunciate, um, he practiced for six years. He went to the most famous teachers of that day. He mastered what they were teaching, namely the jhanas, uh, up to the highest level uh, of jhana. He also practiced various ascetic practices, practices of mortification, but still he had not yet penetrated to the deepest truth or a freeing realization. He was able to stay in the bliss of the jhanas for extended periods of time, but he saw that that kind of happiness or peace or bliss was temporary, that it was not that uh, ultimate goal that he was searching for. And so he realized 
that all these different practices that he had um, undertaken did not have the power to bring about a change in his heart and mind and that they actually did not lead to a deepening of understanding that they were not developing wisdom so then with that he gave up all these different ascetic practices and uh, took a course which he thought was more in the middle he knew the life of indulgence and sense pleasures from his life in the palace he had experimented with all these uh, practices of mortification and uh, denial but none of these led to um, a freeing of the heart and mind and so he uh, took a course in the middle and so he started to observe the processes in his body and uh, his mind and so it was with this careful observation of his um, processes in the body and mind that then he fully awakened to absolute reality discovering uh, the noble truth and it is said that this happened in the third watch of the night just as the morning star appeared in the sky and this also happened on the full moon day of May like in ancient time the, ta the night was divided into three watches the first watch was from about 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. then the second watch was from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. And the third watch was from 2 p.m. Uh, 2 a.m. until 6 a.m. until it was getting light. And so, this realization of what we know as the Four Noble Truths, this happened uh, in the third watch of the night. And these Four Noble Truths, they are, as you're probably familiar with the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering and the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. The Buddha did not stop at just mentioning that there are these four noble truths but he went further and he also said what one has to do with these different truths and what they refer to so the truth of suffering this refers to the five aggregates of clinging earlier on in this retreat I have talked about these five aggregates and so the truth of suffering the Buddha said this truth must be thoroughly understood so it means that the unsatisfactory nature of these 
five aggregates of clinging must be thoroughly understood. Then the second truth is the truth of the cause of suffering. And the cause of suffering, this refers to craving or tanna based on ignorance. And the Buddha said that this truth must be abandoned. So craving based on ignorance must be abandoned. The third truth is the truth of the cessation of suffering. And this refers to Nibbana or the complete destruction of craving or in other words Nibbana is that state free of greed, hatred and delusion. And in regard to this truth the Buddha said that this must be personally and directly experienced. And then the fourth truth is the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And this path, this refers to the Noble Eightfold Path. And in regard to this truth, the Buddha said that this truth must be developed, this truth must be cultivated. So after his enlightenment, then two months later, exactly on the full moon day of July, he uh, gave his first discourse. It's the famous Dhammachaka Bhavatana Sutta, which he gave to the five ascetics, which were uh, his companions. Um, in his life as, a, as an ascetic. But when the Buddha gave up these uh, ascetic practices, these mortifying practices, they, these five ascetics thought that he was reverting back to a life of indulgence and luxury. And so they left him. But the Buddha was far from going back to a life of indulgence and luxury, but uh, his path was uh, an, a middle path in the middle of the extremes. So the Buddha had looked with his omniscient mind to whom he could teach what he had discovered, to whom he could teach these Four Noble Truths who would be able to understand them. And so finally these five ascetics came into his mind. And so then he went to the place where they were staying. And this was in the Deer Park in Isipatana, near present-day Benares in Saranat. And so when the Buddha finally arrived at this place, the ascetics saw him coming in the distance and still thinking that he had reverted to a life of luxury and indulgence, they said to each other 
that they were not getting up to greet him uh, as it would have been customary. But at least they prepared a seat for him just in case he wanted to come and uh, sit down with them. But then, as the Buddha came nearer, they just could not help back uh, getting up and go up to him, greeting him, taking his arms bone. And they greeted him with the term friend. But then the Buddha told them that they should not address him with the term friend because he had become an arahant or a fully enlightened one. But the five ascetics did not believe him. They did not believe him that he uh, had attained to the deathless because they thought how could he attained such an exalted state having gone back to a life in luxury having given up these ascetic practices but then the Buddha told them that he had never claimed before that he was fully awakened or that he had, uh, was an arahant that it was only now after actually having that realization that he was claiming it. And so with that the five ascetics realized their mistake and then respectfully addressed him as Bhante, which means something like Venerable Sir. And so then the Buddha uh, delivered his first discourse, the Dhammachaka Bhavatana Sutta, setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. And it is said, uh, when the Buddha had given this discourse, the earth-dwelling devas, we have seen there are some devas dwelling on the earth, so they raised a cry saying, at Varanasi, in the deer park at Isipatana, this unsurpassed wheel of Dhamma has been set in motion by the Blessed One. It cannot be stopped by any ascetic or Brahmin or Deva or Mara or Brahma or by anyone in the world. And so, after the earth-dwelling Devas had raised this cry, then the Devas of the different heavenly realms uh, raised the same cry and so it reached as far as the Brahma world and when it had reached the Brahma world in that moment it is said that the 10,000 fold universe shook it quaked and it trembled huge earthquake and it is also said that an immeasurable great radiance appeared in the world. And so, with the Dhammachaka Bhavatana Sutta, the Buddha had set in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. And this wheel of the Dhamma is still turning at this present time.
Besides the Four Noble Truths, there is another important and basic teaching that needs to be understood and experienced. And this is the teaching of dependent origination. This is uh, what we chanted this morning. It, contain, it contains the twelve links of dependent origination. We chanted it in the forward order and in the backward order. So this teaching of dependent origination is a very precise exposition of the conditioned pattern independence upon which suffering arises and independence upon which suffering ceases. It is said that on the eve of his enlightenment the Buddha pondered deeply upon the suffering of old age and death and he reflected about the causes and conditions of these sufferings and methodically traced them back until he had this uh, breakthrough by wisdom. So this investigation of the causes of suffering, of old age, death and so on, this investigation was done with careful attention and so then it culminated in the discovery of what we know as dependent origination. It's important to note that not only the forward order is important to understand but even more so the backward order because it's with the cessation of ignorance that the comic formations and all the rest do no longer arise and so then as a result uh, we have thus ceases this whole mess of suffering So this teaching of dependent origination can be summarized with these two sentences. When this is, that comes to be. Without this, that does not come to be. So the Buddha had understood and was also teaching the path that uh, the path that leads to the supreme state of liberation the path that leads to the end of the whole mess of suffering but the Buddha also understood and was also teaching different paths leading to various types of wholesome mundane happiness. So in all the teachings of the Buddha we can discern these two different paths. There is a path of mundane enhancement and this enables living beings to plant wholesome seeds 
and they in turn lead to uh, happiness, peace and security in the worldly dimensions of their lives. And then there is this path of world transcendence and this path of world transcendence leads to the attainment of Nibbana or the cessation of all kinds of suffering. The Buddha, after he had become enlightened, had only one aim, namely, namely to help sentient beings to become free from the cycle of birth and death, to become free from all kinds of suffering. So he was always concerned with their welfare, well-being and happiness. It is said that the Buddha became enlightened at the age of 35 and he passed away at 80. So for 45 years the Buddha was teaching the Dhamma to people from all walks of life. He did not discriminate uh, the poor or people from uh, lower castes. And as a matter of fact, the Buddha accepted anybody as a disciple. And what was quite revolutionary at his time was that he not only accepted men as disciples but also women. A bit later on then the order of nuns uh, was established. And this was quite a challenge for the prevailing social and cultural norms at that time when women were not considered very highly when it was almost believed that they had no intelligence, that it was beyond their capacity to do uh, such a thing. But very soon then the women proved that they were not inferior to men and that they too could attain uh, to the highest possible state, that they could uh, become fully enlightened. So with the establishing of the two orders of monks and nuns, he opened the gate for anybody who was interested in a spiritual practice. He rejected nobody uh, to come and uh, practice his teaching. And so finally when the Buddha was 80 years old, he announced that in three months time he would enter Parinibbana, which meant that he would pass away. Venerable Ananda, who had been the Buddha's attendant for 25 years, was greatly aggrieved by the prospect of the Buddha's passing away. And so the Buddha consoled him, saying, Enough, Ananda, 
Do not grieve, do not lament, for have I not taught from the very beginning that with all that is dear and beloved there must be change, must be separation and severance. Of that which is born, come into being, compounded and subject to decay, how can one say, may it not come to dissolution? There can be no such state of things. Now for a long time, Ananda, you have served the Tathagata, which is a term the Buddha uses referring to himself. You have served the Tathagata with loving kindness, indeed, word and thought, graciously, pleasantly, with a whole heart and beyond measure. Great good have you gathered, Ananda. Now you should put forth energy and soon you too will be free from the taints. The Buddha uh, told this Ananda because during the life of the Buddha, his attendant, Venerable Ananda, was only a Sotapanna. He had uh, reached only the first stage of enlightenment. And so the Buddha urged him, uh, be diligent, strive, and you too will be able to put an end to all the taints, which is another expression, uh, to become fully enlightened, to become an arahant. And as we know, after the Buddha's Parinibbana, then Ananda became an arahant, and he really uh, practiced. And shortly before the Buddha passed away, um, he said this, this are these famous, famous last words of the Buddha. Behold now, because I exhort you, all compounded things are subject to dissolution. Strive with diligence. It is said that at the time when the Buddha passed away, the great earth shook again and thunder rolled across the sky. And the Buddha's entering Parinibbana, or passing away, this too happened on this full moon day of May. Then the Buddha's remains were cremated and then the relics were distributed. With the Buddha's, with the Buddha's passing away, he gave a last teaching to his disciples, namely, all compounded things are subject to dissolution. He was no exception, and the Buddha had no intention to remain forever or to assign himself a different status. The Buddha himself was not immortal and so he had to let go of his life. But being fully enlightened and having no more craving for further existence 
at the time of his passing away, all his aggregates ceased to exist. So the passing away of an arahant, and the Buddha is included, the passing away is called Parinibbana. And it is also called Kanda Nibbana because the Kandas, the aggregates, these five aggregates, cease to exist. When an, agra, when, when an Arahant uh, enters Parinibbana, then all his or her aggregates cease to exist. Just as the flame of a candle ceases to exist when it's blown out. At the time when a person uh, becomes fully enlightened or uh, reaches Nibbana, then that attainment is also called Kilesa Nibbana because at the time of full enlightenment all the Kilesas, all the defilements are completely uprooted or extinguished. But that person, that Arahant, is still alive. So this person still has uh, the five aggregates, the body and the mental aggregates. So they are still remaining. So the life of the Buddha and his teaching as it has been handed down through the ages is this still relevant for us nowadays? Is it still relevant 2,552 years after the Buddha's passing away? still relevant in a, in a world that looks quite different from the world in which the Buddha must have lived in ancient India. So for example, in this past 2,552 years, tremendous material progress uh, has happened. And so with that, what the Buddha was teaching, does it still address human concerns? Can we still relate to what the Buddha was teaching? And we don't have to go very far. It's quite obvious. The Buddha's teaching of suffering and of how to overcome suffering is as relevant and important today as it was at his time in ancient India. The outer world with all the material progress that has happened since then um, has not changed the human's heart or the, uh, the human being's uh, condition of the mind and the heart. So the nature of the mind, the heart is basically still the same. Unsatisfactoriness, troubles, misery, 
dissatisfaction, frustration, worries, grief, and so on. They are as common and widespread today as they were uh, throughout human history. This whole mess of suffering, as the Buddha put it so poignantly, arises through ignorance and conditionality. Everything in this world arises through causes and conditions and things that have arisen later on cease to exist. So every being and every phenomenon in this world is part of this net of interdependent conditions. This conditionality, this law of cause and effect, is the basic law in this universe. And this also applies to human beings and this law of cause and effect also applies on a moral level, as we have seen, karma and its effects. And so conditioned reality leads to insecurity and fear. There is no um, firm stability. But on the other hand, human beings and other living beings, they, they are looking for stability. They are looking for permanence. And so in this way, reality and what human beings would like to do not match. So there is a great uh, difference or disharmony. And so human beings are constantly torn between these two states, between what is reality and what they would uh, like to have or what um, their, their likes, their preferences or their expectations. And so this difference between these two states makes life unsatisfactory and this leads to this human tragedy. The teaching of the Buddha does not and it cannot dissolve this tragedy but with the Buddha's teaching one is able to sharpen or to clear uh, the mind and with that to clearly see what actually exists and so seeing and understanding reality as it is discerning the causes which are uh, at work and by discerning the causes one can abandon these causes. In my uh, talks I have a number of times mentioned that with the practice of Vipassana meditation, we try to see things as they truly are, to see 
mental and physical phenomena in their true nature. And so when things become clearer, then it becomes apparent that the causes for this human tragedy or inherent dissatisfaction is actually in human beings themselves. It's not somewhere out there. So one comes to see that, that it is this constant craving for things or craving for things not to be, to get away from things that uh, leads to this, this unsatisfactory state. So, on an obvious level, it all, all boils down to craving or greed in all its form that is the obvious cause for suffering or for dissatisfaction. And so this brings us back to the Four Noble Truths where it is said that the cause of suffering is craving, tanha in Pali. So the second noble truth, Samudaya Satcha, says that craving is the cause of suffering. And the third noble truth, that's the truth of the cessation of suffering, says that it is actually possible to attain this state where suffering is absent. And so when there is no more craving, there is no more suffering. So then suffering ceases. And that's the third noble truth. And with this uh, link of craving as the cause of suffering, we can go back to the chain of dependent origination. And there is this one passage where it says, dependent on feeling arises craving, as we have uh, chanted it this morning. In previous talks, we have seen that feeling, or Vedana, arises with each moment of consciousness. Feeling is present in all of our different experiences, be it in the body, be it in the mind. Feeling actually being uh, a mental state. And so we cannot prevent feeling or Vedana from arising. That's simply not possible. But when we are very mindful and alert, then we can let the feeling be just a feeling without reacting to it with craving. So craving means either uh, like an object and get attached to it because it's pleasant or neutral, or 
It can also mean that we crave to get away from the object when it is unpleasant or painful. And so it is exactly at this place that we can sever the chain of dependent origination. If we let feeling be just feeling, be that pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, then no craving arises. And if there is no craving, then the next link, clinging, will not arise. And if there is no more clinging, then the next link, existence, will no longer arise. And with no more existence, there will be no more birth. And when there is no more birth, then uh, there will be no more the suffering of aging or sickness, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. In order to see things as they really are, the Buddha indicated a path that brings about this clear understanding of reality. And this is stated in the fourth noble truth, namely the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And this noble eightfold path has three divisions or can be put into three groups. And they these three divisions encompass our behavior in the world which refers to our actions of body and speech, what we do uh, in this world, how we live our life. Then the second division is the training of the, of the mind in one-pointedness, concentration. And the third division is the training in wisdom, or insights and understanding. And so these three divisions, morality, concentration and wisdom, are the three pillars upon which the Buddha's teaching is resting. Shortly before the Buddha passed away, a wandering ascetic by the name of Subhadda, approached the Buddha and wanted to know whether other teachers were fully enlightened or not. He wanted to know whether the teachings of other teachers could lead one to full enlightenment. And the Buddha's answer was that any teaching which contained the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, in that teaching one would find enlightened persons. So the training in wisdom or understanding includes that we always bear in mind the changing nature of all phenomena, that we always bear in mind our own impermanence, our own mortality. 
that we bear in mind that things arise and pass away, that they don't last. Our behavior in this world should be not detrimental to ourselves and others. Our speech, our actions should be for the good, for the welfare of other beings and ourselves. So all our actions of body and speech should be conducive to contentment, to happiness and peace. And lastly, it also should be conducive to become fully enlightened. And the training in one-pointedness or concentration should aim at the sharpening and unifying of the mind so that the true nature of all phenomena can be clearly seen and understood. For the Bodhisattva, this clear insight and penetrating understanding arose in the full moon night of May and this penetrating insight or understanding made him to the awakened one or the fully enlightened one, made him to the Buddha, made him to one who knows. And since then many have followed in the footsteps of the Buddha's teaching and have been able to also put an end to their suffering. The Buddha's inheritance has been handed down throughout the ages until the present day. So whoever takes this teaching to heart and puts it into practice can taste the same liberating fruits of happiness and peace. This let's end our Dhamma talk here. May all of you be able to taste the ultimate freedom and put an end to all suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.